You know, uh, it's funny, the things that you remember as a kid, when you look back and remember specific memories that pop up, for me, uh, during the summers, my paternal grandparents would watch me. And I remember as a kid, I would take naps on the floor of my grandfather, who was legally blind. Although he could see out of his peripheral vaguely, he was completely blind in the front. But what was amazing about my grandfather was that he had the ability to, get this, put together 1,000-piece puzzles. And with the patience of Job, this man would grab a piece, he would touch the edges of it, and strategically place it on his desk. And over the course of weeks, he would eventually place each puzzle piece in its spot, and it would make a beautiful picture. Just an amazing thing, y'all. I can't do a 25-piece puzzle right now, okay? Just an incredible gift. Well, as we begin a series today of looking at the end times, there's a danger that you and I, we grab a puzzle piece, a small portion of the end times, and we study it and we hold it, but we disconnect it from the big picture of the gospel, the big picture of what God is doing. And what I don't want us to do as followers of Jesus to study the, old, uh, the, the end times that we see Jesus teaching us in Mark 13 and that we go hoard canned goods and we put tin foil on our heads. We don't need to take just one piece and separate it from the bigger picture of what God is doing. Well, when we get into Mark 13 in verses 1 through 13, we see the call that Jesus places upon us to endure with vigilance. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 13. We're walking through the gospel of Mark together as a faith family and Uh, We've seen Jesus on the move in so many ways as we've been going verse by verse through this remarkable book, this fast-paced gospel. We're becoming closely acquainted with Jesus and with his disciples. Over the next several weeks, we're going to do a mini-series through chapter 13 called The End of the World as We Know It. Now, I very intentionally picked that that title because many of you are already going back to your seventh grade CD days of REM. Now, I don't know the rest of the words, but I remember that phrase in the song. <laughs> it's the end of the world as we know it. Well, we get to Mark 13. We see where Jesus is now in the middle of Passion Week. Passion Week began back in chapter 11 with the triumphal entry as Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a humble donkey. He has prophesied the coming destruction of Israel through the cursing of a fig tree. He has cleansed the temple. He has entered into, ba- into debates with religious leaders and won He celebrated the poor widow and her offering, and now Jesus teaches four of his disciples, and through his word teaches us today what the end of the world is going to look like. And in Mark 13, beginning with verse 1, the scripture says this, as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus told them, watch out, that no one deceives you. 
Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For a nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. But you, be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you at that time. For it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. After silencing the religious leaders, Jesus teaches his four disciples here what the end of the world is going to look like. Now, as we embark on the study of the end times in Mark 13, I put in your notes three ways that we need to approach this text. We need to hustle, be careful, and be humble. Hustle, be careful, and be humble. We must hustle because it requires hard work. We can't be lazy, we can't be half-hearted or sloppy as we approach a study, especially around the end times. I tell my boys all the time, laziness doesn't change the world. God has not called you to a life of laziness. So it is true for us, Westwood. As God's people, as those who love his word, let's be a people who work hard as we dig into the scriptures. We labor as we seek to understand what the scriptures have laid out for us. So let's be a people who hustle. But also, let's be a people who are careful. As we approach 13, we need to be careful on how we study this. I need you to clear your mind of the Left Behind series. I need you to forget what the History Channel has told you about the end of the world. Forget the movies. Forget the, the, the fictions that you've read. And let's let the Bible do the talking, Okay. Let's let Christ be the one who sets the agenda, who teaches us what the end of the world is going to be like. That we also have to be careful of not going into the extremes of studying the end times. Now, Kenneth, what do you mean? There is a temptation for some, when they begin studying the end times, it's all they talk about. It's all they study. It becomes the primary focus of their life to the neglect of service and community and evangelism and prayer. It all becomes about the end of the world and they're the ones wearing the tinfoil hats and storing away food. Let's not let that be us. Okay, there's there's a big scripture that God's laid out for us, the meta-narrative, the big story, and we can't just focus on one part. And yet simultaneously, we can't go to the opposite extreme in which we don't look at the end times at all. In fact, it has been given to us in God's word for our good. He wants to teach us and instruct us so that we can know not only what is to come, but how we can persevere and endure as these difficult days come. Jesus has laid out for us in the book of Revelation what the end is going to look like. He says in Revelation 1-3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because the time is near. 
So let's be a people who are balanced, who approach the studying of the end times both faithfully and humbly, but also with a posture of being faithful in evangelism and discipleship. But also, I think what's important here is that as we read Mark 13, this is not a theological Rubik's Cube. We don't need to be trying to figure out secret meanings or hidden agendas. We don't need a secret decoder ring, okay? We take what Jesus has taught us and we take it and we absorb it, we understand it. But then the third part, we gotta humble ourselves under it. We are a people who do not stand over the scriptures. We are a people who sit under the scriptures, We submit ourselves humbly to the authority of God's word and we let the word of God not only govern but guide us as we look towards the future. So that being the case, I put in your notes the thesis of Mark 13, the big idea, and it's this. Jesus is the prophet who foretells what will happen between his first coming and his return. And so as we study this text, I want you to see Jesus here, the prophet, who is telling us what is about to happen. And the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus is pointing to the prediction of the temple's coming demolition. The prediction of the temple's coming demolition. As Jesus is leaving the temple a day after teaching, one of his disciples remarks on the beauty and the stunning architecture of the temple. Now, the temple was one of the great architectural marvels of the Roman world, located on Mount Moriah, the same place where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. Okay? You'll, you'll be thinking of parallels tonight while you fall asleep of the temple and Abraham and Isaac. It looked from a distance like a mountain of gold. First century uh, historian, he's both Roman, Roman and Jewish historian, Josephus, he wrote this. He said, the exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. Okay, this monstrosity of a building was radiant with gold. It was the brightest of white stones. It was polished and its structure was gorgeous and it it stood on top of this mountain like a jewel. In fact, while uh, Christy and I, we were over there a couple of years ago, I I I took this picture in the basement. We went through the underground tunnel underneath the foundation of the temple. And what you see here are the stones that have been put together And these stones here at the foundation were laid 2,000 years ago, and they're still holding true, and they're completely flush. There's no concrete or anything in between these stones. They are still perfectly together underneath this temple complex. And what's amazing is the stone that you really can't see from this picture, they're about the size of a school bus. They're ginormous, weighing thousands of tons The weight is unbelievable. It's architecturally sound sound as the foundation of this temple mount. Herod the Great started the construction of this temple and the construction at this point when Jesus is here teaching, it took 46 years to build this. Now remember back in John 2 where Jesus was telling the 
the, the Pharisees and the scribes the sign that he's going to give to them, and he tells them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days? Well, they were shocked by his statement. They said, this temple took 46 years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the statement that Jesus had made. You see, the reason that these religious leaders were perplexed by Jesus' statement about the temple being destroyed and raised in three days was the sheer size of this complex. Imagine 30 football fields all put together. That's the size of this complex. It's massive. It's so big that it compels the disciples to ask in verse one, how can anyone destroy the building so colossal, so beautiful? But then Jesus makes this shocking statement, verse two. Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. All will be thrown down. You see, Jesus is pointing forward to a day when this gigantic monstrosity of a complex would be utterly destroyed and Jesus would be proven the true prophet. For in 70 AD, 40 years later, Jesus' words were literally fulfilled. You see, Jesus Christ is the true and greater prophet of God who speaks for God and demands obedience. He is the true prophet. And here he is, even better than Babe Ruth, calling his shot of what's about to happen. He calls it 40 years in advance. Here's what's about to happen. This incredible temple with all these beautiful stones and the gold, guess what, it's all coming down. And it shocks the disciples. Like, how is this possible? But you see, Jesus is the prophet of God who speaks the truth of God. And Moses knew that this guy would one day be coming. For in Deuteronomy 18, 15, he said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers and you must listen to him. Well, God brought judgment. He brought judgment to Jerusalem under the Roman army of Titus. He destroyed the temple. He destroyed the city. And in the great Roman invasion of AD 70, more than one million Jews were slaughtered. The Roman army destroyed the temple by setting fire to it, and the intense heat of the fire made all of these beautiful stones come crashing down. God judged Israel through Rome, and just like the spiritual condition of the people of Israel, the temple looked beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, it was full of people's hearts who were hard and hypocritical. The Roman army took the gold, and the rest of the stones that were left, they threw down into the Kidron Valley. Here's what's amazing. I took this picture while we were over there, and to this day, you can see some of these stones that are still lying there on the ground. Just as Jesus said would happen, it happened. He is the true prophet of God. And you can still see these stones laying there that were thrown down even to this day. But you see, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the temple was no longer needed. Worship was no longer about a building, but a person. 
The Lord Jesus Christ, sacrifice of animals was no longer necessary. For Jesus Christ's death on the cross was the perfect sacrifice. The temple was no longer an old building in Jerusalem, but now the temple is inside the followers of Jesus. That the Holy Spirit now comes and takes up residence inside all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 5, he says, we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What we see in the text is Jesus is the true prophet of God who predicts the temple's coming demolition. But the second thing I want you to see here in the text is that Jesus is pointing to number two, the preliminary birth pains of the world's coming devastation. The preliminary birth pains of the world's coming devastation. Jesus and his disciples, they go to the other side of the Kidron Valley after a long day of teaching, after a long day of debate with all these religious leaders. He sits down on the Mount of Olives. And just as you can sit next to the Vulcan and look over across the city of Birmingham, here is Jesus sitting on the Mount of Olives surveying the city of Jerusalem, especially the temple. And he gets his inner four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and they begin to pepper him with questions. And notice the two questions that they ask. When and what? Verse four, when will these things happen? And what, verse four, will be the sign that these things will take place? Well, in regards to when these things will happen, we're gonna study this more in depth in a few weeks. But we see in verse 32, just to kind of give you a, a teaser, Jesus tells us, no one knows the day or the hour. Hey, we don't know. If anybody says they know, get up and walk out, all right? We don't know. Jesus doesn't know. But in regards to the what, we see where Jesus gives out these, these, these generic world events that will take place. Notice what he does say. He says, verse five, watch out. Okay, now that is an imperative. It's a command, Jesus is commanding us, watch out, pay attention, be on guard, beware. Well, beware of what? Verse five, that no one deceives you. Okay, so notice what we're supposed to be watching for. First, I put this in your notes, false messiahs. Watch out for these false messiahs. He says in verse six, many will come in my name saying, I am he. Luke 21 and Matthew 24 are the two other passages that mirror Mark 13. And Luke and, and Matthew give some greater detail that Mark doesn't. In Matthew 24, 11, Matthew said, many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. That word many should alarm you. It should alarm you. Many, many, many people who are gonna be deceived. Question, are you one who will one day be deceived? Will you be deceived? See, the thing about those who are deceived is they don't know that they are. They think they're in their truth. They think they're walking in the light. They think that they're the ones who are right. So Kenneth, how can I know if I am being deceived? Well, here it is. This is the key. The key is that your thinking, your believing, and your living aligns with Scripture. Let me say that again. The way you know that you are not being deceived is that your thinking, your believing, and your living aligns with Scripture. 
You let the word of God guide and govern your thinking. You let the word guide and govern your believing. You let the word of God guide and govern your living. You let the Bible be the authority in your life. Hear me on this. If you're not studying your Bible, you are in danger of being deceived. If you are not allowing the word of Christ to dwell richly within you, you're in danger. Because a lie that sounds like the truth could easily hook and bait you in to being deceived into believing something about God and the gospel that is not true. And there are very winsome and persuasive preachers who will lead you astray. It matters that you humble yourself and get low before the scriptures and you let the word of God guide and govern your hearts. Hear me also on this. If you are not faithfully connected to a local church, you are in danger of being deceived. You can easily become like the antelope who is sick and off to itself and can easily become the prey of the enemy who is like a roaring lion seeking to devour your faith. You need other believers who are around you who are watching your life and watching your doctrine and watching your attitude and saying, hey, bro, don't go that path. Hey, you're thinking about this not in the way of Jesus, but in the way of the world. You need people in your life who are watching your back saying, hey, I see something in your life that doesn't look like Christ. You need other godly women who are saying, listen, I see an attitude of your heart that needs to be repented of. Let's turn from that. Let's go to the scriptures. Or, hey, I see you laboring faithfully. You're doing so great. And we champion and we encourage and we admonish one another. Hey, keep going. Keep following hard after Christ. You see, the way that you and I help protect one another from being deceived is not only the word of God, but it's one another. We're saying, we're going to do this together. We're going to follow Christ together. We're going to be faithful together. Make it your mission that the people in this church, they hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Make that your mission. Because here's what's going to happen. If you make it your mission for everyone else to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, you will too. Let's make that what we do as followers of Christ together as a faith family. There's a danger of being deceived. It matters who we listen to. It matters what we're studying. It matters what you're reading and listening to. You need to be able to train your mind to sniff out false teaching. So that when someone says something with great intentions, you can say, nope, that's not true that disagrees with the text of scripture. Make us, uh, like, let's make us a people by the spirit of God to become more and more like Christ and that we let the word of God govern and guide us. What's terrifying is how easily so many people fall into deception. I put in my notes, in the past hundred years of false messiahs who have come forth like Jim Jones, and Marshall Applewhite, and David Koresh, and Joseph Smith. People who have created cults, false religions, and have claimed to be false messiahs, and have led millions astray. It's dangerous. Eternity is at stake. 
Discipleship matters. Not only your knowledge of, but your love and joy of the word of God matters. So why don't you protect yourself from being deceived by being a Berean in Acts 17 who says, I'm gonna hear everything and I'm gonna study the scriptures to see if these things are so. Many, verse six, will come claiming to be the Messiah and many will follow after those false messiahs. Another indicator of birth pains of the world's coming devastation are wars. We see there in verse seven, nation rising up against Nation, verse eight, kingdom rising up against kingdom. Now, as believers, we don't need to be, verse seven, alarmed. We don't need to be frightened because these things, verse seven, they must take place, but it's not yet the end. Did you know, I looked this up, I studied this. Did you realize I'm 38 years old? Every year of my life, there has been a war somewhere in the world. Now, you may not see it on your social media feed or on the newscast, but please understand, war is constantly taking place around the world. But we don't fret, we don't fear, because ultimately wars and rumors of wars are actually just a warm-up of what is to come. For we see in Revelation 16 and 19 that there's coming a day in which there will be a great and final battle between Christ and his enemies. And we will see Jesus in the valley of Megiddo, 60 miles north of Jerusalem, when Jesus will defeat his enemies and he will throw the Antichrist and the devil into the lake of fire where they will remain forever. Another indicator of birth pains of the world's coming devastation are natural disasters. We see it there in the text. These various natural disasters like earthquakes and famines, they will result in massive human loss of life. These are just a sign of the things that are to come. Just as a pregnant woman goes through intense contractions leading up to birth, Jesus is saying these are just the contractions. These are just the birth pains. Okay, These are just the Braxton Hicks of what is about to come. And this is mild in comparison of the judgment that God is about to bring. But hear me, if you are in Christ, we do not fear. We do not panic. We do not wring our hands over what's going to come in the future. Why? Because our God is sovereign over the future. He is the one who is already there. And we celebrated this last week that because the tomb is empty, we don't have to be afraid of death. What can man do to me? Yesterday, I spent some time in the home of a man who's been a faithful member of our church for over a decade. And he is moments away from taking his last breath. And as I was stroking his hair and holding his hand and speaking the gospel into him and reminding him, Jesus is with you. And I looked at his wife, full of joy, full of Jesus and heartbroken at the same time. And I was reminded afresh, the gospel changes this moment right here. And it's in this moment that we do not fear we do not panic and we do not fret. Why? Because the tomb is empty. And so we're not going to be afraid of what the world's going to throw at us. We don't have to worry about wars and rumors of wars. We don't have to worry about our children's and grandchildren's, how, how the world's falling apart for them. No, no, no. Jesus is already there. Your job is not to worry about the future. Your job is to prepare your children for the future, to get them ready 
to pray them up, to teach them up, to prepare them so that when they face persecution, when they face down the barrel of a gun, they do not blink. They stand firm saying, here I stand in Christ. I can do no other. That's what we're preparing them for. And Jesus is saying, we see an intense and increasing uh, white hot persecution that's gonna one day come. We're not gonna panic. We're not gonna fear. He says here, don't worry about it. Do not fret. Do not fear. We're trusting in the Lord. The third thing we see here in the text that Jesus is pointing forward to is the persecution and the disciples' coming opposition. Jesus tells his disciples, verse 9, be on your guard. Why? For they will be handed over to local courts flogged in the synagogues, standing before governors and kings for the sake of the gospel. And these men whom Jesus is talking to, we read the book of Acts and everything that Jesus is telling them here comes true. These are the same men who face incredible persecution and suffering for the sake of the gospel. When we read the book of Acts, we see that everything Jesus is saying actually happens to them. And you see, to follow Jesus means you're gonna have to endure hardship. You're gonna have to endure persecution. You're going to have to go through the difficulty and the trials of this world. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 10? I send you out as sheep among wolves. Nobody, nobody questions what wolves do to sheep. But that is what we endure as followers of Jesus. Because our good shepherd says, I will be with you even to the end of the age. And so we fight not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the rulers and the dark spiritual forces of this world. And how do we fight? We fight from our knees with prayer. We fight by opening the scriptures and proclaiming the good news that those who are captives to sin and death and hell, they can be set free just as we were through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we do as followers of Christ. We seek to remain faithful to what God has laid out for us. And when persecution comes, we do not flinch. We do not fear. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you are unwilling to face hardship, if you're unwilling to face persecution and difficulty, hear me, you cannot be a follower of Christ. Oh, hang on there, Kenneth. You mean that if I put my faith in Jesus, it's not going to be easy? No. You're going to face hardship and pain and suffering. And Jesus will be with you every step of the way. This is where we stand as followers of Jesus. He says, verse nine, but you be on your guard. The world's gonna be chaotic. There's gonna be war and famine, earthquakes and all kinds of chaos, but you, personal responsibility, but you be on your guard. Watch out for yourselves. Be alert, alert. be aware. That word for guard, it means vigilant. Okay, this, this idea of being aware and your eyes are open and you're on alert, almost like a guard who is protecting a city, aware of what's happening around him. He is alert. He is aware. He is ready. Why do we need vigilance? Because as followers of Jesus, we will face persecution. 
Some of us will face hardship, opposition from government and legal authorities. It's going to be harsh. Throughout church history, we see thousands upon thousands of our brothers and sisters who have suffered under intense persecution for their faith in Christ. Many have lost their lives for their faithfulness to Jesus. The book of Revelation points to the coming reality of an ever-increasing persecution that will come before the Lord's return. And it is necessary, verse 10, that the gospel be preached to all the nations. In Matthew 24, verse 12, Matthew adds this phrase that Jesus says, before the end comes. The gospel's gotta be preached to all nations before the end comes. So here's the thing is, if we want to see Jesus come back, we've got to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. The great commission is why you and I are still here. It's to point people to Jesus so that our neighbors and the nations might treasure Jesus Christ. And he will bodily, physically return to rescue his church and to bring us home. That reality is coming. But the role that we play until that day is the declaration of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Westwood, let's make sure we continually keep our eyes on the field. Asking God, would you raise up workers for the harvest? God, would you use us as a faith family to make an impact against the lostness and the darkness of this world as we hold up Jesus, as we shine the light of Jesus so that men may see our good, good works and give glory to uh, our Father in heaven, that we would preach the good news that the captives can be set free through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we do. You see, churches that look internally will eventually die. Churches that continually look outside will never die. We will be continually looking for those who are far from Christ and we call them, repent and run to Christ. He loves you. He bled and died for you. Run to him and be saved. And then walk with us as we follow hard after this crucified and risen Messiah. And we're not those who fear. We're not those who panic over what the latest breaking news is. It's not us. We don't live by a news ticker. We don't live day to day based upon what social media says is important. We have a bigger picture in mind. And though the world says that if you're not on the right side of certain topics that are hot topics of the day, you're on the wrong side of history, we're on the right side of eternity. That's what we're living for, the glory of King Jesus. And so we don't fear we don't panic. Why? Because in that moment in which we, we testify, look at verse 11. Look at this promise Jesus makes to us. Say whatever is given to you at that time. For it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. I love this. The Holy Spirit will enable you to speak before your prosecutors. To say exactly what he wants you to say. So you don't got to panic. You don't got to fear about what's coming. What are you going to say in that moment? The Lord is with you and the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. But then also notice the heartbreaking part of verse 12. Even the opposition of our own families. Verse 12, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. I'm humbled by the stories of brothers and sisters in Christ who had their own families turn against them. Last year, I had the opportunity to meet a brother who's a pastor in Kenya. 
He grew up Muslim, had a radical transformation in his mid-20s where he heard the gospel and believed. He used to get up early in the morning and make the Muslim call to prayer on the loudspeaker, but then God rescued him and transformed him. He went to his family and said, I'm following Jesus now. His father said, you're dead to me and I'm gonna kill you. So his father and his brothers sought to kill him. His fiance called off the engagement and he ran for his life. The church there in Kenya took him in, cared for him, protected him, provided for him. And now he is planting churches all across the country. And it's amazing as I was talking with him, he has scars all over his body from the beatings he has taken. As he goes into these Muslim predominant communities and he preaches, run to Jesus, he loves you. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a man whose own family turned against him. Question, if your own family turned against you, would you remain faithful to Jesus? This is why Jesus said in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and father, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is setting here the priority of saying that your love and allegiance to me has to be so great that it appears as hate for those who are the closest in your life. If you're going to be faithful to Christ till the end, you've got to be willing to persevere and endure and remain your allegiance to King Jesus even before all of your closest earthly relationships. For Jesus says there's coming a day in which your own children, your own parents, your own siblings will turn upon you. You see, following Christ means allegiance to Jesus is far more important than allegiance to family. It's a call to be faithful to Jesus, even to the point of great personal cost and sacrifice. To be his disciple is to count the cost. To declare, Jesus, even if the world arounds me, my marriage, my children, my parents, my grandparents, my grandchildren turn against me, Lord Jesus, I'm staying faithful. I'm not going anywhere. To whom shall we go? For you have the words of life. Lord, I'm staying with you. And this is what it looks like even at the end of the age. And on top of that, Jesus says, look at verse 13. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. Question, are you ready to be hated for your faith in Christ? You must make up your mind right now. Whose applause do you want? If you want the applause of the world, you cannot have the applause of Jesus. You have to choose. You can't have both. And I think an even greater question is, who do you fear more? Do you fear God or do you fear man? You're gonna fear one or the other. And the world says, I'm gonna fear man because I want the praise of man. Or you can say, no, 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 no. I fear the one who gave me life and breath and gave his life for me and the one to whom one day I will give an account of my life. I want to seek his kingdom first. I want to be about his agenda because his praise is eternal while the world's praise is temporary and fake. Do you want the praise of earthly kings or of your heavenly king? 
Make up your mind now. For when you're put in that moment of testing, when you're put in that moment of temptation, how will you respond? Faithfulness to Jesus or faithfulness to the world? Solomon said in Proverbs 29, 25, fear of man is a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. Who do you want to please? When the world hates you, remember, Jesus still loves you. He promises his presence, his power, his persevering work to keep you even to the end of the age. You see, faithfulness requires perseverance. You're gonna have to endure. In fact, that's the impact point I want you to see today. The call, Kenneth, what you're asking us to do, it's this. Be vigilant and endure hardship. And when you do, you will be saved on the last day. Jesus says, verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. You see, you and I, we persevere not to be saved, but because we are saved. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. God will preserve you as you persevere in the gospel, as you cling tight to Jesus. Because you see, what you and I are experiencing right now is like a small puzzle piece. And we can't see the big picture in light of what the world is revealing to us. But when we look at the scriptures, we see the canvas that God is painting. That though trial and difficulty come, when that puzzle piece is put into place, the picture is Jesus wins. And when you trust in him, you are on his 